And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's our biggest ever podcast with special guests Neil Clark, Charles Coleman Finlay, Irene Gallo, and Sheila Williams, discussing the state of short fiction on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome to all you short fiction people. Um, Jonathan and I agreed, prior to the podcast, that I, I could start the discussion because... Of all of us, in terms of the contemporary state of short science fiction, my expertise is the most indiscernible, um, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, but but one thing I hear from uh, a lot of people, and I probably said this myself, is that we're in a golden age of short fiction. There's more short fiction available than ever. There's more free short fiction available than ever. There's more long short fiction available than ever before. And I'm going to start by uh, just throwing out this question of whether this really is a golden age and, and asking each of you in turn to comment on that, starting with uh, with you, Sheila, because you've had a long tenure now at Asimov's and you've seen a lot of this over the years. Uh, yes, I think it's a wonderful age. I think it's funny. I remember about 15 or 20 years ago, I remember a letter from someone to us saying, you know, citing a bunch of different writers like Stan Robinson and Bruce Sterling and Connie Willis and saying, oh, this is truly the golden age of short science fiction. So I'm always think that, you know, when you're in the middle of something, it's hard to tell, but it's a wonderful age. We've got wonderful writers, um, terrific material, uh, interesting new voices. Um, and like you say, there's a lot of, there are many places to be published and to be seen. It's a lot easier. We always had a lot of places, um, fanzines and smaller magazines publishing fiction but they were harder to mm. find now on when you can put your material online it's it's easier to track it down and, and uh so you can it's easier to reach actual readers so it's a golden age in terms i think of access to the readers um maybe for the readers that is true i mean it, it that it's a, a really great time to be a science fiction reader because you're able to find your fiction everywhere. Um, so uh, in terms of quality of writing, I think it's it's great. I don't know if it's better. You know, I, I hate making comparisons, but it's what, but I think it's terrific. I, um, I've been um, co-judging an award for 23 years, the Dell Magazine's award for best short science fiction or fantasy story by a college student. And mm -hmm. I've really seen um, – it's been wonderful to see how many of these, you know, over the years, many of the, the people who've won the awards have ended or were finalists for them have become published authors and are appearing all over the field, have not three-volume three trilogies and winning major awards. and But also what I'm starting to see now is a lot of them are, are appearing – they've already had – um, they already went to things to to workshops when they were in high school, and they um, they're able to connect with each other online and workshop online. So it's really interesting. We're finding that a lot of people who are sending us stories have more um, uh, experience than they did years ago. Is that your sense, Neil? Because you've got one of the more visible online venues, in fact. Um. Well, I think that um, I'll agree that it's a golden age for readers. Um, 
I'm not entirely sold on it being a golden age for the business side of things yet. Uh, I think we've we've still got a few years of the current trajectory to get get there. Um, we've got a lot of markets, and that's part of the problem is that there's not enough readers to sustain all of them to the level that one would consider professional. Um, not enough and, readers, and, or not enough. Not enough readers or not enough paying readers? Not enough paying readers, yes. Okay. There are plenty of people who will read stories and, and not pay. And in, in fact, uh, the numbers online are l- less than 10% of the people actually support. Um, and, and it's probably more like 7%. Uh, so it, that, that aspect of it requires really large numbers. And we're seeing the, the, the reading community grow. But I think... Part of the the uh, the issue now is that we've got to grow internationally, uh, since you know all these online magazines are basically international magazines, um, and we're now seeing our international audiences grow and hearing from other people who want to start magazines in their countries as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I think in that terms, the community is really growing. Irene, let's hear your take on this because Tor.com has certainly had a dramatic impact the last couple of years. Um, yeah, I, I kind of lack the uh, historical perspective. I, as, um, as you guys probably know, the bulk of my career has been in the, the art uh, side of things. But um, mm-hmm. there's certainly a very vibrant community, and um, and we find, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of the, the the difference between sort of a, a readership versus business, we have been finding uh, the switching the novella form into a, a more commercially viable product. Uh, to be very successful for us, so um, it's really been it's very malleable right now. We can we can try so many different things and see what works and see what doesn't work, and uh, so it's certainly fun playing ground at the moment. Uh, Charlie, you want to you you've been at FNSF for what just a couple of years now, right? Yeah, coming up on three years. Okay, What's but you know I've been. I was going to say I was in the industry as a writer before that, you know, for 15 years uh, right. uh, before that. So my, my perspective is a little longer and comes from both sides. I think that this is a, a great time for short fiction, both as a writer and as a reader. And and part of it is the explosion of markets that Neil mentioned. Uh, part of it is what Sheila mentioned, just the uh, um, – you know, uh, training that writers are getting at earlier ages. I love what Tor is doing with novellas because I think the novella form is really kind of the heart of science fiction. Um, but I think that the two biggest trends that I see that are interesting is um, uh, the amount of of training and professionalism that writers get in now. We have not only all the Clarion workshops, uh, Clarion, Clarion West, Clarion South, right. the Odyssey workshop. There's the Alpha Writers workshop for high school. There's all the MFA programs, many of which now uh, take speculative fiction writers. There's the uh, low residency MFA programs like Stone Coast, which have a yeah. focus on uh, that. And so, so when I looked at the uh, submissions I was getting for FNSF, over two-thirds of the stories I received were from writers that had previous professional sales or who had been to one of the uh, workshops, you know, the the uh, uh, kind of 
professionalism workshops. And so I think the overall quality of the writing is higher than it's ever been. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that not 90% of it is crap. I think there's, you know, maybe uh, to borrow the, the Sturgeon phrase, there's a very small percentage that, that lacks any kind of professionalism at all. But uh, the overall quality is very high. And that makes our job both easier uh, in terms of picking things we like, but harder because we can't take everything we like as editors. Uh, there are so many choices. The other interesting thing, I think, is uh, what Neil talked about, the interna- internationalization of uh, science fiction. The uh, online markets really created this global community or, or made it easier to create a global community. And I like what I see in um, like African speculative fiction with Omanana mm-hmm. uh, magazine or um, in Asian science fiction with the Mythlia Review. Uh, where they're trying to find uh, the voices and traditions uh, within their own uh, countries and their their own writing communities and develop those. And I think that's really good uh, for the genre and for uh, the community as a whole. We're getting uh, broader perspectives and broader voices than ever before. And I, I think that makes this a really exciting time to be in speculative fiction. Well, Jonathan, you and Neil are the Anthologists in the group, which means you get to sift through this. You you, you get the second cut, so to speak. Uh, is is your sense from that perspective that what everybody else has said is exactly true? I agree with an awful lot of what's been said. I suppose my primary feeling, though, is that I've come to distrust this desire to label something a golden age or not at all. I've lived through three or four or five of them now and you know they can't all be actual golden ages and i've also sort of come to think that your personal golden age when you're reading yourself for the first time tends to greatly influence what you consider to be outstanding that said i think we're in a fascinating period of time i think we're actually and i would sort of echo something that Neil was saying about the state of things creatively and uh, commercially. I think we're in a transitional period of time, which makes it really interesting for readers. I think it's a great time for readers. I think we're seeing broad internationalization of science fiction as the outcome of inclusion, and that's going to continue over the next 20 years or so, and we will arrive at something new and, and worthwhile. I think if your definition of golden age is there is more good material out there than I could ever read, then it is. I think the thing that perhaps actually masks the question a little bit is that the average minimum level of competency of the material you see has been brought up because of all of the workshops that Charlie was talking about. So I think we're seeing more competent stuff. Whether we're seeing more outstanding work, I don't know, though we still see a lot of it. So an interesting time, but I'm not sure it's golden. Yet? Well, um, anybody want to contest that? I mean, I think that um, I, I, I was just as a kind of interjection, I was looking at uh, actually the only year's best anthology I've seen so far, which is yours, Jonathan. And I got curious. I went back to the very first year's best anthology I reviewed, which was, I think, Gardner Dozois from 1996. And the stories in that were there, – there's a Le Guin story, The Coming of Age in Carhide, Paul McCauley's Recording Angel, David Marisek, We Were Out of Our Minds with Joy, Greg Egan, Wang's Carpets, um, Jim Kelly's Think Like a Dinosaur. If I look back at that now, that looks like a golden age too, doesn't it? Um, 
You want to start with that, uh, Sheila? Well, that is the issue. You know, you you pick up any particular there. There's that. I agree that it's not. I don't like. I actually totally agree with Jonathan that we and it's an old truism. You know, the golden age is when you're twelve. But the it's there are times there are cresting times. It seems like when everything comes together and there's a whole whole group of really interesting people writing. Um, uh, this right now, I think, is less, I don't know, it's so much more, the writers are so much more diverse that I don't see, back in, you know, you could think of a time where you had a, a little sort of mini feud between supposedly the the sort of cyberpunk and the humanist Sheila? authors, and you could, you could put them into... These these two separate definite groups almost, and I don't think you can do that these days as much. I think the writers are writing so um, there are so many different voices right now that I don't see like a big one coherent uh, group. And maybe ten years from now that'll be ridiculous, and we'll say, of course they were all doing this. But I don't. I'm not seeing it right now. I'm seeing just a whole uh, explosion of really interesting and not necessarily similar material so i'm not i would never call it it's as i said before very hard to call something golden when you're in it but i am definitely enjoying the work i'm seeing a great deal well neil you are raising uh i guess the hard question which is uh whatever we think about the variety and and quality of the amount of work can writers actually make a living doing short fiction anymore uh not where I live. <laughs> I think I think that's true of most places. Um, I mean, the, the true of general fiction too, certainly. Yeah. Well, the, the, well, go ahead, Neil. Okay, so so the CIFLA qualifying rate is six cents a word. So, if think of most stories, I, I guess the average length of the story we get somewhere between five and eight thousand words. Um, and slowly creeping up, it still doesn't amount to to a whole lot of of money, um, and we're paying ten cents uh, for uh, in those cases, and it's still not enough. Um, you know, I think uh, you know even even as you creep upwards, it, it's 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 still going to be difficult. And I know a lot of authors that actually make more writing nonfiction uh, because there's actually a decent pay rate there. Sometimes a dollar a word, so. Or more, so uh, it does make it very tough to to do that as a short fiction writer. On the other hand, and I'll uh, I, I want to move on to Irene about this um, because the novella market may be a little bit different. Um, again, being as old as I am, I've listened to people like Bob Soberberg and Harlan Ellison talk about having to publish a million words a year, mostly in junk markets. Mostly in really bad super science fiction stories kinds of magazines. And I wonder if the absence of those junk markets has kind of eliminated the fallback position for some writers. Maybe nonfiction has become that. Um, okay, I'll just throw that to you, Irene, and see if that makes any sense at all. Uh, I, I would imagine it's it's um, also difficult there. I mean, we pay, pay all of our bloggers, but um, I, I imagine uh -huh. it's an actual living. I, I think like a lot of – you know, I know a lot of artists too. You know, They make money – uh, they make a living by piecing a lot of these things together, and I would imagine, you know, if if an author can can suss out a living, um, 
strictly on their writing. It's a combination of, of all of these things. Uh, certainly with the novella program, it's, it's more, but it's, it follows a lot of, um, of what publishing follows. You know, the people, there's a group of people that are doing very well with the novella program. And then it sort of, you know, sort of filters down through there in terms of like being close to making a, a living out of it. So, yeah, I think you need to have, have a lot of things going on all at once to, to piece a, a living together. Well, let me ask Charlie about since you're still a working writer after all, being an editor. Uh, if, if you weren't editing this magazine, how would you be making a living right now? You know, I would have a lot more time to write. One of the things that surprised me about editing has been the learning curve uh, and uh, just how much there is to do and how many things there are to juggle to keep it going. It's one of those uh, jobs that will consume your whole life if you let it. Um, mm. But I, I don't think that there was ever a time where most writers made their living writing short fiction. I think they always balanced it with writing novels, with writing outside genre, uh, with uh, agenting, with reading uh, with editing, with reading for uh, publishers, uh, uh, you look back at the careers of everybody, you know, from Damon Knight on back, and, and they did it from uh, by juggling lots of different things. So I don't think that's changed now. The other thing that Gary mentioned to me that was interesting was he started this conversation uh, by talking about the year's best collection uh, and talking about the one that he read in 1996 and all the year's best. So I was looking last year in 2016, there were 22 years best volumes published. So there were not only like the year's best science fiction or year's best science fiction fantasy there was the year's best young adult speculative fiction uh the year's best weird fiction the year's best hardcore fiction right. uh, the year's best novellas best new horror and i think that that's something that didn't exist in 1996 or 1986 we have better quality work across genres uh, that allows all these anthologies to exist now um i don't know if that's fragmenting readers or not but i think that the the quality of work or the depth of the the uh the work right now um is deeper uh across genres than it's ever been that's an interesting point and jonathan do you think that the readership has become fragmented to is that a good or a bad thing well, I'm going to answer the, the first part of your question first. Okay. Do I think that the readership has become fragmented? Yes, I think the field has atomized over the last 20 years greatly. Uh, I noticed this past year, particularly when I was coordinating the Locus Awards short fiction uh, material, that there appeared to be a clear dichotomy between readers who were reading work that was available for free and work that was available they had to pay for. There was a real distinct difference between the groups. I also think that there is, because there's been a very healthy growth overall in the field, because there's such a large volume of material, there's the opportunity to now read within your most preferred kind of fiction, whatever it is. I mean, Charlie was talking about all these years' bests, and they go on down to mm -hmm. – not on. They, they go on across to, um, you know, best gay fiction, best lesbian fiction, best whatever else. So depending on where you want to read, you can read within that and have a lot of material to read. So what I'm waiting to see – happen is that re the, the, the rejoining of everything to see what shape it is in later, which I think will happen because we're already starting really? to see oh yeah, I do think it will happen, yeah, uh, partly because the internationalization trend that we're talking about, particularly through online avail availability material I mean, 
Clark's World, Tor.com, Lightspeed, um, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Apex, all these other things. They're all basically international, and that means you have the chance to reach a common readership. I think uh, I think you will see it come back. You can see it in the failing the, the of various years' best. I mean, about four of the years' best that Charlie mentioned from last year have already ceased uh, pub, you know, publication. You know, the YA year's best has ended. The year's best novellas has ended. Uh, I think there's another one as well that has. Uh, I think you'll see it coalesce back to a more common view. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Um, because I think that's what enriches the future of the field. Having everybody ultimately work together and incorporate all of these views. I think that's been the great gift of things like... Um, Ken Liu's work with Clark's World and elsewhere, bringing in Chinese science mm-hmm. fiction, the work that um, Jeffrey Ryman is doing at Strange Horizons now and was doing at Tor.com for African science fiction, and the stuff that's being, doing, being done at book length and whatever else. So, I mean, I, I, I think it will work out, but I think it's interesting. Well, Sheila, you've been when, – when you started at Asimov's, even before you were editing Asimov's, was there a sense that there was a coherent readership – which really isn't there anymore. I don't. Um, I don't know. We have. I will say we. We have always had and continue to have an international readership. Um, it's easier mm-hmm. now because people can uh, subscribe into uh, digital editions of the magazine, so they're more. You know, they don't have to worry about losing their magazines in the mail. Um, and uh, we have a. Um, an active, we have a Facebook page that's pretty active with readers. Um, they, you know, I can't really tell. I get, you know, a lot of um, cover letters that imply that the person writing the story has been a long-time reader. Uh, do you mean a coherent reader of Asimov's or coherent readers of science fiction? Um, what did you mean exactly? Um, I, 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 I'm going to sound really old again. Um when I was a kid, there were three magazines, and you knew where to go for what. If you wanted hard science fiction, you went to Astounding, and then Asimov's. You wanted literary science fiction, you went to FNSF. You wanted social satire, you went to Galaxy. And I, that's long since dissolved, I think. Yeah, um, no, I don't think anybody is particularly, you know, if they, they read what they like. Um, analog is always will definitely have hard science fiction. Um, Asimov's is fairly eclectic. Um, but I don't think there's a, a – there, nobody is saying that anything is set by – I mean, I don't know. I, I, I assume – I mean, I assume you're including all the um, online magazines in those groups these days, right? Oh, yeah. It wouldn't just be – I mean, nobody's looking at it now in terms of what the print magazine versus what the digital. They're thinking that – or the online. They're just all in one group, I would think. So I, it's true. Maybe um, – uh, I don't know. I don't think there's. Well, it could be that there's one type of reader who's going to be more drawn to analog. Certainly, the analog type story than um, elsewhere. But in general, I would say that the readers have pretty eclectic tastes, and they read um, widely. They don't just read. Well, some of them may read one magazine, but most of them read you know, multiple magazines. Um, I don't. Um, you know, they, they're going to have, they have, they're, they're like, I mean, I, I, I have broad tastes and I think those are the readers do too. You know, it's, um, well, I guess, um, I guess what I'm getting at and I, uh, wanna, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, we, one thing we've 
there's a huge overlap between what you were dropping out there for a minute I was just going to say the biggest overlap we've always seen is that of our subscribers is that they subscribe subscribers to Asimov subscribe to Analog and vice versa. So there's always been overlap of readership, and I would suspect that the same readers are reading stories of Clark's World and um, Uncanny, etc. You know, Tor. I, I, I guess I guess what I'm getting at is a question, and this is related to something that Jonathan just said and something that Neil said earlier. Um, that that simple division of hard SF and so forth, it, it, it doesn't really work anymore. Hard SF could be Yoon Ha Lee or, or Elliot de Bodard, or it could be Gregory Benford. And I'm not sure that those are all the same readers. So I'm wondering if what we're seeing is not an atomization of the field so much as a realignment, maybe a kind of redefinition of, of, of readerships and subgenres. Does that make any sense, Neil? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh uh, I'm trying trying to figure out where you're going with this, and uh, I don't know. I, th- I think that there's uh, th- there's a Go lot of, of of overlap between the different publications. I know from our readers that that they right. read some you know, various other places as well. But I don't know. I I, I think I, I agree with Jonathan that that things do seem to be fracturing a bit, um, and part of that is tied back to the so many markets. So many distinct flavors, even with the year's best. There's there's mm-hmm. various niche projects and things like that. And I think whether or not um, they survive is going to be a, a a factor of economics more than anything else. It's it's you know if, if these anthologies don't make money, then they will cease to be, uh, and things will contract back in. Same thing goes for the magazine market. And I've even said a few times now that I believe that the magazine market's in for a contraction. I could say in our case, you know, we don't work in issues and that has you know, p- positives and negatives for us. But um, I find that it then the conversation really comes to be around the authors themselves. And, you know, you will see it online. We'll see a different set of people talking about a story if it's one author versus another. So for us, uh-huh. I don't think it's so much as condensing around, you know, the magazine itself, uh, if you can loosely Call Tor.com a magazine, uh, and so much. Um, it's more just author by author each week for us. Uh, that I, I find that vaguely encouraging in a way. Uh, it, it makes to, to me it sounds like uh, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy horror are more becoming more like the short story in general. That is, people. People will gather around a Kids Johnson in our field the way they would gather around a George Saunders in the New Yorker, uh, which which is not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Or or is it? Charlie? Go go ahead, Irene. Oh no, I was just going to say, and and just having so much material available online, or at least through online, and being able to research and find it, I think it's just easier for people to follow an author's career than maybe it was right. in the past. And um, and people earlier have talked about how there's uh, just a greater level of competency early on in authors' careers, and I've very much found the same thing in artists' careers over the years, mm-hmm. in that I think just having not being so isolated. When I was a kid, I was the only person in the world that liked art living in, you know, a suburb of Long Island. And, and now every kid is, you know, being raised with all of their influences around them and being able to reach out and, and, and um, really 
just sort of being surrounded by the things that I love. And I, I'm, it seems like the same thing then uh, is happening with the writers as well. Now, Charlie, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that um, I see that uh, um, readers read more than any one magazine can produce. And uh, FNSF has an online forum, and we, not only do the readers discuss discuss the stories that are in FNSF, but they also create topics every month for the stories in Asimov, the stories in Analog, the stories in Clark's World, and they discuss the stories from those issues and compare writers across the magazines. And so uh, if there's a writer they'll like, they'll they'll highlight their work uh, across the different magazines. So the I don't see a lot of evidence um, for readers, but what I do see is that they read widely, um, that they read more than just one market, and that they're really interested in um, the different. Uh, they're really interested in the careers of writers, and they're really interested in sampling the different flavors. Nobody wants to eat the same uh, ham and cheese sandwich for lunch every day, or not. Most people don't. They want to mix it up, and I think that's true in their fiction taste as well. Well, that follows up on what Irene said, but the, the inverse of that, you just said that um, that readers read more than any one magazine can, can produce, which sounds reasonable. On the other hand, magazines and venues as a whole produce far more fiction than any one reader can read. So one of the questions is how do you become selective? Um, and I'll throw that one to you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how you become selective, Gary. I suppose what you do is you, you sample. I mean, the great gift of the modern era, I suppose, is that it is simple to sample. I mean, when I first encountered the science fiction short fiction field, it was difficult to find a copy of Asimov's. Now, Asimov's and Analog and FNSF show up in my uh, Kindle every month without me having to think about it. And Clark's mm-hmm. World shows up once a month, and Lightspeed shows up once a month, and Tor com is constantly uh, issuing new short fiction and novellas um, so it's it's more filtering out a barrage and building up a personal picture of what it is you're interested in reading what what I'm interested in is how writers feel connected to those various place markets and how readers feel connected to writers because what it feels to me that one of the, the products and I think um, maybe it was Sheila was saying this that what you're seeing is the brand of the writer is becoming more important than the brand of the publication, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a change. You know, now you'll go along and you'll read a Nydia Korafor story and you'll see it wherever you find it. Now you'll, you know, maybe you'll be interested in an Elliot de Bodard story and you'll find that wherever you, you, you're looking rather than necessarily expressly looking for the next issue of a set publication. And I think that's more of a change. I don't think it's a distinct change, but I think it's more prominent than it used to be. I guess the question that that raises then, if people can follow can follow writers across platforms much more easily than they could before, the next question is how does a writer develop that readership? How does a writer become somebody to be followed? I remember, to go back to my 1996 anthology, one of the writers that showed up there in that year or maybe the year before was David Marasek. Nobody had ever heard of him, and there were two absolutely stunning stories in a row. How does – and, and – and, and, Again, Sheila, since you've been involved in this for, I I guess, longer than any of us, how does a new reader get into that list of readers that people want to follow? A new writer, excuse me. I I want to first say that it was Irene who made this point first, not me. Okay, all right. (laughs) um, But I'm I'm perfectly happy to answer. Um, The... um, 
it's not easy. Obviously, I I find it. I take the. I really take seriously at Asimov's that that there should be that I have to publish new writers, beginning writers, in you know as often as I can. I mean, I still they have to be published quality work that is that deserves to be published in Asimov's. But um, I really believe you know a magazine can't survive just on established voices because they go away they don't stick around forever Mm -hmm. and also because the field is constantly revitalized by new people so i think that a lot of my longtime readers know that if they pick up asimovs they're going to have they're going to read people they're very familiar with they're going to read christine um, chris rush or alan Steele or um bob reed but they also know that they have a chance to find new people. And so, you know, the first time they read an Ian Creasy or a Derek Kunskin or, um, you know, Suzanne Palmer, who they never have heard of before, you know, they don't know. They're taking a risk to read that story. They have only so much time in their day, but they've had, um, you know, they've had rewarding experiences in the past reading new authors and Asimov. So they give me the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, what I've, what I find very makes me very happy is how well the new writers do in our Reader's Award poll, because I really feel the readers of Asimov's are not influenced by any kind of, um, you know, there's no popularity contest going on there from the personalities of anyone, because they are just reading the magazine. Most of them have never even attended a science fiction convention, or, you know, Uh they're not really hanging out with these authors or anything. So they really are voting for the stories they just really enjoyed reading. And I'm always pleased to see that the, you know, that new writers do very well and sometimes win with their first story just because it shows me that the readers took the time to read the story. So my, this is a long way of getting around to the fact that you, you build your, you know, the, first of all, the editors have to take a, a gamble on the new author and once a couple of editors have published someone, they've got a track record of other people may have noticed them because they like their stories in Clark's World or Asimov's or wherever, and and so other um, editor or maybe they like them anyways. They, it had nothing to do with us, and um, you know, it's it's gradual. But editors, it's part of the process. Is just that editors have to always be alert and looking for new writers, and it's kind of a um, the you. You know, it's it's almost like our part of our it's our responsibility. <laughs> Especially, I mean, I'm always amused to realize how many um, book publisher, book editors, and agents are reading the magazines in any form to find new writers. You know, for you know, in terms of they're looking at their short fiction when they're looking for books or you know um, people who can write book length work. So. Um, I, I, so that's my answer. It's the old-fashioned, you know, um, but it's a, you, you a know, lot of it is due to us. You've just made a brilliant case for the importance of editors, why editors are there, why everybody on this podcast except for myself should be nominated for a Hugo in the short fiction editing category <laughs> because we learn to trust venues. We learn to trust Asimov's or Clark's World or Tor.com or fantasy and science fiction. And when I grew up, that was what I, I, I trusted in the editorship of the magazines. Um, uh, does, Neil, do you, uh, do you feel that you're that powerful 
that you can make or break a young writer with the first story? <laughs> um, no, I, I I tend to consider myself a little more subversive in just sneaking in the the the, the newer <laughs> authors and uh, and and uh, hoping that you know they'll go places. I mean, what, what Sheila was saying before about constantly needing to find new voices it, it's true. They start writing novels and 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 we miss them. And we need somebody else to fill the spot. And I've been having conversations recently with a few new writers um, who who have been dismayed by submission statistics. And I've been trying to tell them, okay, yeah, the, the odds of being published in Clark's World are, are less than a percent if you look at things quantitatively. Um, you know, but it's a qualitative process. And a, a good new writer has just as much a chance at getting published as, as – uh, uh, somebody who's won multiple awards and just as much chance as getting rejected as those people as well. I'm not going to ask what the actual statistics are. are there, is, do you have a sim- similar issue at, uh, at Tor.com, Irene? I'm in an odd position at Tor.com because I'm, especially with the short stories and novelettes, I'm, I'm basically working with a team of uh, editors, Alan Datlow yeah. and Vandermeer, Patrick Nielsen, and, um, and it's funny because I'm probably the only person that's read pr- practically every story that we've ever published, and I can, I can, I know I, I, I could feel what an Ellen story is versus an Anne story. I don't know from the outside if it if it uh, comes across as much. So it's it's um, an interesting um, sort of way to look at it for me. Um, now I've totally lost track of the actual question. Well, I mean, <laughs> we were talking about how a new writer gets in, and that, I'll, I'll give oh, yeah. you an example from from Tor. I mean. Um, Kaya Shanti Wilson seemed to show up out of nowhere, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, and I uh, that came in through uh, Anne Vandermeer, and it was a fantastic, you know, story. And uh, his second story was even better, and mm-hmm. got a lot of attention. And when we started the novella program, um, Anne at that point um, was was not as interested in going into the longer fiction, but our in-house editor Colin Gallard was, and so they kind of worked together um, a little bit to to sort of figure that all out but um and it is he is you know one of the authors that's doing the best for us uh and the novella program in a commercial in a more commercial venue uh than the short stories and, and novelettes that we do so it's been very gratifying to watch his career but, uh, as a new writer i have to point out we, we had kai on the um uh, on the podcast and he made it very clear that he had no idea whatsoever what he was doing getting into the science fiction and fantasy field he had never been to a convention had never met anybody Obviously, a brilliant guy and extremely nice, but he was inordinately grateful to Tor.com. Let me put it that way. Oh, he's and he's been fantastic, and everything. He's he. We just got another short story from him. That's that's just amazing. I can't wait for it to come out. Um, uh, and back, you know, through Anne Vandermeer again. Um, I don't know how where, where uh, Anne met him or, or came across his fiction, so I'll, I'll have to ask her about that. But we pretty much, you know, especially on the the short stories and novelettes, we pretty much give each editor uh, free reign to bring in whatever they want. When it comes to the novellas, it's more of a a traditional book uh, process. The the editors come uh, submit stuff. We look at it uh, in-house. We have to do a P&L on it, you know, so it's it's a slightly different process there. But with the short stories, it's each editor really um, has the ability to to bring in what they want. Charlie? Discoveries? Do you feel like you have a chance to discover new writers and make somebody's career? Uh, 
Um, I don't know if I, you know, making somebody's career is really up to them because I think it takes more than just short fiction. But well, yeah. we've published, uh, we've published so many new voices in FNSF over the past couple years, and a couple of them have already gotten, you know, award nominations or done very well. I think Charlotte Ashley published her first uh, pro story in FNSF last year, and we've bought uh, three or four from her uh, now. And uh, Fine Balance hit a couple of years best, and uh, Laharen uh, was. Up for both the Sunburst and the uh, Aurora Award. Um, so, uh, and then we've, you know, publishing writers like Wole Talabi. We have a, a story coming from G.V. Anderson, uh, from another one from Robin Firth. So I think that there are. You know, in almost every issue, a new writer, if it's not their first story, it's going to be one of their first stories. And I think that's part of what readers expect when they pick up a magazine. They want that balance of familiar and um, and fresh. You know, they, they like seeing the, the authors that they know, but they also want to be surprised by uh, things. And that can be a new voice or a, a new kind of story from an existing author. Uh, and if you don't have that, I think the magazine doesn't work. Uh, Sheila talked really well about that, and I don't know that I can can add much more to it. But I, I think that if a magazine doesn't have that balance uh, between kind of, of uh, just familiar writers, known quantities, and, and the the new, the kind of of writers that blow your mind away because they're doing something very different, or uh, just because their voice is so unique to them. I, I think if magazines don't have that, they don't succeed. I think that's an argument, another argument in favor of magazines that, to some extent, you know, we as readers trust editors' judgment, and the editor is going to put in some things that we know we will want to read. And as long as we've got the issue in front of us, here's somebody we've never heard of before. Um, and we'll we'll give it a try. I guess my question again uh, now to Jonathan and, and Neil, you could jump in on this as well as if you want to. Is the same thing true of anthologies uh, that no. you can sort of? No, it's not. Okay, let, let, let's take a step back. First of all, I think this is a pernicious myth that that basically languishes from the Campbellian era or something that a particular editor or a particular publisher can make your career or break your career. I mean, I think. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about the vast number of markets. There are many places for a writer to find a home. And if the writer is writing high-quality fiction, there is a very good chance that they will find both publication and a readership. Um, it may prove that one particular publication is the home that they end up going to. I mean, we talked about you know, Kaya Shante Wilson going to Tor.com, and that's as much uh -huh. a historical artifact. I mean, I believe that if Kaya Shante Wilson had been publishing in another venue, he would have done just as well. Also, you know, the, the corollary myth that somehow editors will kill your career if you're not professional or nice or something or other is equally fictitious. You know, I don't think I've ever, ever come across a writer, an editor who seriously would do such a thing or, and this is really critically important, could do such a thing. You know, uh, it's actually probably an era where authors are more independent of editors than ever before and, 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 and venues in that sense. Now, to swing back to, to, to your question about whether anthologies can make a career, anthologies, first of all, tend tend to come out to smaller audiences than magazines. It's not always true, mm -hmm. but it tends to be true. And they tend to be more focused and more infrequent. You don't get that frequency of building a market. So it's possible that an anthology will publish a single great story or two, 
but I don't think it, it'll make a career. I mean, I think about Susanna Clark in Starlight. All of her short stories are published in Starlight. Yet, really, it was the you know the novel she had come out that made her career. Uh-huh. If you think about Ken Liu, I mean, his most famous story was published in FNSF, if I recall correctly. But I mean, he published everywhere. Yes, you do. I thought I did. The Paper Menagerie was an FNSF story. Paper Menagerie. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but if you also if you look around at um, let, well, okay. If you look at say the the books that George Martin and Gardner Dozois do, the you know the rogues and all this sort of thing, they'll publish a great story, but making a career, I don't think so. I think it's just not frequent enough and narrow enough. It'll be part of the story, but in making a career, but not the story. Neil, do you agree with that? Yeah, I I very rarely have seen a single story launch an author's career and and usually if it's a single story that's done it it puts in a tremendous amount of pressure on that person mm. um, to, to follow it up uh, and, and anthologies as Jonathan said have a, a, a narrower audience um, not as much reach um, being included in a year's best if it's if it's um, timed right and everything like that 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 can be a nice feather in your cap, but it's not going to make your your career either. It's it might help. Well, I mean, there 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 are a handful of writers that we could name. Actually, there's one the one writer that comes to mind in every discussion of this sort, who built an entire distinguished career around around one story was Daniel Keyes, uh, which actually takes us back to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and he he. It's not as his. It's not as though I used to know him. It's not as though his career ended with that story. He wrote very little other distinguished science fiction, but he had a decent career writing nonfiction and and, and mystery fiction and that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, so that kind of one shot wonder seems to be something that will always be with us and and really doesn't amount to much in terms of the history of the field. I guess what I was thinking about were writers like you know who. Trivia question: Who published the first Ted Chang story? Omni. Okay, uh, the kind of thing you get with <laughs> Ted Chang, kind of thing you got with David Marasek for a while. Um, it, it, it's it's not it's not really possible to have a one story career anymore, is it? Charlie, you first. No, no, no! Please let Sheila go. Okay, Sheila. I, I just feel like I wasn't saying that. I hope people don't. I hope you guys don't think I was saying it was a one story thing. I was saying. Oh that, no, no. That, that it's being you asked how did authors build up a following and i was saying you know it's being published and regularly and and editors have to be aware and and they have to find the new voices and so that and then they're usually published in more than one place and that's how they build up a following i wasn't saying it was a one shot you know um the oh, no, I- one brilliant story and that, that would set the career going it's more usually it's a it builds a little more. It builds more slowly. Um, you know, every so often you get a James Tiptree Jr., but that's not typical. You know, so I, I just want to make sure you didn't think that's what I was saying. Oh no, I, I, I wasn't getting at that at all. Does anybody else want okay. to contribute on that question? Because it was the more I think about it, a pretty silly question. Well, actually, I have a question, Gary, that I might put to everybody in place if I could. Uh-huh. And that would be, you know, perhaps starting with Irene and working working around. What do you think are are the commercial challenges facing short fiction right now? Um, that that's tough. I'm in I'm in a very privileged 
position here at Tor.com is because we don't, the magazine itself doesn't earn money. Um, it is a, a marketing vehicle of, of Tor and of Macmillan's. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the website itself needs to bring in enough traffic to be considered, you know, valuable as a marketing vehicle, and, and it is um, with, within the, the corporate structure. Uh, but each, we don't need to earn a living off of each story. We don't need, you know, again, we don't have issues. We don't, you know, so we're in an odd position that way commercially. Um, that said, you know, we, we did do this, we, we did spin off the novellas into a, a commercial uh, venue, and that's uh, and that's worked out very well for us, I think, Um People have responded to them as books in a way. Uh, that was sort of the, the biggest hurdle I thought we would have when you know before we launched it. That was the mm-hmm. biggest uh, fear I had um, was that people would not really respond to them as books, but people are responding to you know twenty to forty thousand word stories as as the way they are responding to more you know longer length words. So the, phys- and- the physical books actually are supporting the website to some extent. Um, I mean, it's you know sort of early for us to. Uh, we've only been publishing about a year, year and a half um, with the novellas, um, and it's not really sort of uh, structured that way right now. Uh, but the books themselves are doing very well. Like that program is is uh, definitely ahead of its its schedule in terms of um, what it's bringing in. Um, just to, just to give you an example, just a parenthesis is when I write a review column for the Chicago Tribune, I can't review a Tor.com novella unless it's a book. Um, yeah, and at this point, they all will. You know, they all. Are, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it, yeah. So, um, but people do respond to them that way. You know, and they're being bought and sold in bookstores, and uh, so it's been it's been really fun. So, but I. To your point of like the commercial viability of short fiction, I'm sort of the odd person to ask because when it comes down to the short stories and novelettes, it's it's yeah. not how our business model works for Tor.com. Sure. Well, maybe we should ask Neil. What do you, what what do you think? <laughs> um, well, uh, uh, of the three magazines here, I have the youngest one at ten years, um, and it's taken a long time to establish uh, a footprint uh, where I could actually make enough to consider it a part-time job. Uh, ah. <laughs> and, and I'm working towards building on that, but it's a, a lot of time uh, sunk into marketing and, and reaching a, a larger group, which is one of the reasons I had mentioned international before was that's that's the area I see for growth. Um, I, I think that we're not seeing a large enough increase in the number of readers within uh, United States and uh, the UK and, and Australia and Canada um, to really uh, t- to really make it work for everybody, um, and and we're doing better than most uh, of our online competitors. And you know, again, we're also working against the hey, the content is available for free problem. Um, but it's uh, I, I think we're seeing more and more people interested in actually making sure things get supported. Where do you see that growth? Do you see it in, in India, China, Japan, Africa? Um, well, there, there's some opportunities for us within China uh, that we've been exploring with our, our uh, partner on the, the Storycom, the company that we work with uh, mm-hmm. for our Chinese translations. We've been talking with, with them about some stuff. Um, but, you know, there's various other communities that 
as we're doing some of these translations, we're, we're actually discovering that we're, we're getting a, a boost within other countries as a side effect. Mm. Um, so our reputation by including people from those countries is improved in those countries. Uh, and then it's more a matter of making sure that we have ways of, of uh, having a distribution channel there. Um, you know, we've got, um, you know, Amazon here, which makes it easy, and, and Waitlist and Barnes and & Noble, but it's a little more challenging when you start trying to talk to um, foreign uh, distribution, and it's there's a lot of barriers uh, to, to get mm-hmm. through that, you know, since I only went full-time last month, so I'm just beginning to, to, to reach the point where I can tackle that more fully. Yeah. Sheila, what about you? What do you think the commercial challenges are? I mean, I was just reading one of Gardner's old year's best introductions from 1984 when he talked about magazines hitting subscription levels of 130,000. And these are different oh, times. Not us. <laughs> yeah, well, well, as well, never was a hundred over a hundred thousand. So, um, and, and they are different times. And we did rely a lot on the old publisher's clearinghouse subscription too, don't forget. But um, as everybody in publishing did, um, but it's it's challenging. We um, we're out on every um, digital format that we can. You know, we're available in every kind of you know um, uh, you know we can be downloaded in all types of formats, and um, and we're you know we're for sale for the i the iPod and the the iPad and the the Kindle and the Nook and Kobe you know everything um, we do some marketing on various platforms we definitely by far are in terms of digital sales the best are at Amazon followed by mm. Barnes and Noble but um, and the others are pretty small comparatively but we we're constantly working at you know, there are little promotion things going on all the time. Um, I, I'm very happy. I've got an anthology coming out at the end of the year. Prime is doing on um, Hugo and Nebula Award stories from um, 2005 to 2015. So that is both exciting to have the book coming out, but also it's promotion. It's a you know, way of look at this great magazine with all these wonderful stories that we've published, and it really is true. And you know, one hopes it gets um, the magazine in front of a, more people, um, or the concept, the knowledge of the magazine in front of people who might not mm-hmm. be aware of it if they only shop in the in the book section of a bookstore. Um, you know, it's never easy. <laughs> There's always, you know, it's it's. Um, um, it's never been easy, but I will say that the num- those huge numbers back in the in the eighties didn't mean enormously more revenue because they were really different kinds of subscribers. One of the best things now is that we we do a lot more direct sales where people buy the magazine directly from us. So we're getting, you know, if you re- if you subscribe through our website, which has grown continuously the numbers of subscriptions coming in we get 100 percent of that whereas if uh-huh. you subscribe to it on some other you know cut rate there there are places online um we're not going to see you know more than 50 percent of that so 
that has meant that a lot more of our subscriptions are um, are more profitable than they were, you know, years ago. Um, and that has really come about because I think of the internet, you know, being able to, to it, it was harder to find, again, it was harder to find us. So it was harder. And there were a lot of scammers out there. That's a whole nother story. That, and they have a harder time now because we can draw attention to them. And, um, you know, they would, they would try to, we would always fulfill a subscription, but if a scammer gets to you first, they keep the bulk of the money and maybe give us $3 or something. <laughs> so, oh, dear. So, Charlie, have you had the same experience with that? Well, uh, you know, FNSF has had problems with scammers um, in the past. I don't know if it's as bad as it, now as it was 10 years ago, I think because uh, the Internet has made it possible to communicate so much yeah. easier with our subscribers. I'm in a situation where I'm really lucky. Uh, when Gordon brought me on to edit the magazine, Gordon Van Gelder, the previous editor, he's also the publisher. And one of the reasons he did that was so that he could focus his energy on developing the business side while I focused on the content and developing the yeah. the feel and, and flavor of the magazine. Um, Hello? Uh, I think maybe maybe Charlie dropped out again? Yep. I think he's gone. Well, Hi, I'm sorry. Charles, Charles we, got, we dropped you from Yeah, I'm sorry. I got disconnected. So um, oh, I'm lucky because uh, Gordon Van Gelder, the publisher of FNSF, was also the editor. And when he brought me on, he brought me on to develop the stories in the magazine, to develop the flavor of the magazine while he focused on the business side. So uh, FNSF for 10 years or for, for five years or whatever, for some period of time, has had an exclusive relationship with Amazon. Where they were the only distributor for our digital content. That contract ended, and now we're available through this and in other formats. Um, and so I think that uh, our prospects are looking up just because we can reach wider audiences, more countries, more formats uh, than we could before. Uh, and part of that is just the division of labor. Gordon can focus on those things, yeah. while I just focus on you know putting together a great magazine. A question for both uh, for both you, Charlie, and 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 uh, for Sheila. Do, are you seeing a lot of single copy sales through Amazon and online venues? Um, it's not as easy to buy a single copy as it used to be. I mean, we we do sell a number, and but uh -huh. and some places only record them as single copy. It's kind of funny, even though they're hmm. really subscription. Um, but um, so it's hard to break that down. Um, because and then that gets Eliza mad at me every year because I have a harder time. In the beginning, I could break out the the. I had an easier time breaking out uh, the single copy from the subscription for digital um, subscriptions. I can't do that as easily now. But um, and it's so it, it's hard to um, you know with a lot with. Went through different name trades, but Peanut Press being absorbed by Barnes and Noble—that was people bought single copies from them. But then this, you know, um, Barnes and Noble discontinued them, mm -hmm. and so that it's it's hard to buy uh, a single copy, a single copy from Amazon or from um, from Peanut or from Barnes and Noble. But it—I mean, you can, but 
you can't buy, say, a back one. You used to be able to easily. Um, they, on the other hand, um, Magster tends to do a lot of single copy sales, um, and um, and the Google store is doing them too. I don't know whether we're seeing a real increase or not. I uh, we do a really good, you know, subscription offer that you can cancel if you don't like it, but you get a couple issues free. If, yeah, the reason. You know, I'm, so the reason I'm asking the question, and the same question goes for you, Charles, is I actually had a student when I was teaching a science fiction course who I showed a copy of, as it turned out, a copy of Asimov's, who didn't understand the concept of a magazine. Uh, and the only way I could explain it to the student, who was a serious, passionate science fiction reader, was, no, this is an anthology that comes out several times a year. And then she was fine with it. Uh, but the idea of a print magazine was not something in her experience. Well, many people have never seen print magazines. I mean, even in the even twenty years ago, I mean, I had, had a hairdresser once who couldn't believe that my magazine didn't have pictures in it, and just kept saying it all through. Kept saying no, no pictures, no, no fashion. Um, but uh, and I have, and years ago, I had to prove prove to the New York to the United States Post Office that we were a magazine because they argued we were anthology and that would change you know the cost of postage so uh, um it's it's um it's intriguing because there are many people out there that have never really aren't familiar with with magazines that are text oriented but um i don't know it's uh you know we we it's it's not it's never been the magazine business isn't easy (laughs) It's bizarre. I mean, Charlie, Charlie just to follow up on, 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 on what uh, Sheila just said, your fantasy and science fiction was famous and controversial back in 1949 and 1950 for being the only science fiction magazine without pictures. Um, and now I think that's more standard. We've um, uh, seen a rise in – and I think uh, single issue sales over each of the last couple years. Um, But the real in the paper copies, just a small kind of nominal sales, but I think uh, it shows a bigger interest in, in where we've seen the real growth is in our, you know, our digital sales. And I think that's where the future kind of lies. But I want to address the thing that Sheila was talking about in the story that you told. I, I grew up in a small town of just a couple thousand people, a rural community in Ohio. We didn't have any bookstores in town. Uh, we had a drugstore that sold comic books and had a paperback rack, but I never saw a science fiction magazine until I was in college, until um, I was in my 20s. And uh, I came across some of the anthologies first, some of the unused bookstores, the uh, best of FNSF anthologies from, uh, you know, Butcher and Avram Davidson Davidson from the 50s and 60s. And that led me to find out that, oh, this magazine still exists. And then uh, that led me to other magazines. And and, uh, that was an amazing discovery for me because it was like the the comic books I had grown up with, but with uh, uh, the stories that I liked better. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that readers still don't come across them or aren't aware of them because, you know, that mirrors my experience. And I think the magazines are harder to find now than they were, uh, you know, even even 30 years ago. So um, 
but I, I think that we are seeing some growth in uh, individual copy sales. I still go and and uh, probably much to Sheila's dismay, I, I go and buy my uh, copy of Asimov's and Analogs from Barnes and Noble every month because uh, I want to contribute to keeping them. Uh, yeah, you want you want them to reorder it. <laughs> I want them to keep. I want them to keep the magazines in the stores. Um, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's my small part for uh, for doing that. Um, well, one, of, one of the things that Locus for years I, – I, do we still do this, Jonathan, run uh, the, the statistics on magazines that has a category called newsstand sales? Have you tried to explain to anybody yeah. under 30 what a newsstand is? No, because no. it's not very important. <laughs> <laughs> what I was, I do have a question though for everybody though, and maybe in the in the order Gary is going through from Sheila and onward, and it's this, and it's I think it's worth discussing for a moment. One of the glibber and more facile dismissals of the short fiction market is that it's essentially a closed one, that it's one where. You know, would-be creators are the people who buy the magazines and the anthologies to support them so that they you know, they have somewhere to send their work, and it's a closed loop. It's never been convincing to me because it seems to me that the audiences that actually read fiction are astronomically larger than the uh, number of people who are actually contributing to magazines. So I'm curious as to whether any of you, maybe start, starting with Irene going through, or starting with Sheila going through, Neil and Irene and Charlie, if you guys think there's any merit to this idea at all, or you feel that it's just a furphy that sort of comes around? I don't think it's true. I mean, a lot of readers do read, do or a lot of writers do subscribe to Asimov and do read it, but there, um, there's far too the numbers are too large in terms of um, regular subscri- subscribers and people who renew on their subscriptions to be, you know, I would say that. To, that for the multi-writers, I would say that almost every reader maybe eventually might write one story after they retire or something because they've always had a story in them. Um, that does not mean that they bought the magazine because they were an aspiring writer. It, it's I've had people that said, I've been reading your magazine for 20 years and I've just decided, you know, I just retired and I wrote this one story that I had in my head for 20 years or something. But... Um, but no, I think there's far too many people subscribing to Asimov's for that theory to hold water. But uh-huh. I think you find that in the smaller literary magazines that you know that don't really pay, you know, the ones that only have circulations of say 200 or something. Then you might have more of an argument there that the people. I mean, I don't know. I can't. I shouldn't say it's true, but you might. The numbers might make it more feasible. Um, but I would say at Asimov's, we it just it's too many the number it's just too many and I would think it's like Clark's World or Clark.com sure. where you, large number of people reading it I just can't believe that it could only be people who want to sell that stories to these magazines. Uh, that, yeah, what do you that, think? That's Will? a myth. And there, there's a few people out there that like to repeat it over and over and over again. And every time I feel like sending them a link to like a bunch of statistics I have because. <laughs> I, you know, I have my submission system, uh, which which Sheila has as well, and 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 I can look at the numbers. I can tell you that there's probably about fifteen thousand people who wrote stories in the last at a, at minimum fifteen thousand who wrote short stories in the last three years that set magazines. Ten of the people using my system, um, I can tell you that my readership is considerably larger than that, um, and that when I compare the list of uh, email addresses I have 
for submissions versus the list of email addresses I have as supporters, the percentages work out very high against uh, this whole theory. So yeah, I don't tend to put much stock in it. I think it's I think it's just um, some grouchy people on the internet that like to spout that every now and then. <laughs> Irene. Uh, I will agree with uh, everything that's been said. I, it's probably a less casual reader. You're not going to be like in an airport and think, you know, what am I going to read and pick something up and wind up with a bunch of science fiction short stories. Nonetheless, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not just creators. And creators are allowed to read them as well. I'm, I'm happy with whoever reads our stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if this was Mythbusters, we'd have to call it busted. Just to pick up on, on, on something that Sheila said. I think it's busted in terms of any kind of fiction that has a degree of commercial viability. But Sheila mentioned some of the small literary magazines, and there's a convention, and I don't know if anybody but me has been to one of these, uh, called the Association of Writing Programs. It's the annual convention of MFA programs, basically. And there's a lot of tit-for-tat. I will give you a free subscription to my magazine with a addition of 200 copies if you'll give me a subscription to yours. That goes on at some level uh, in uh, what you might call initiatory publishing, some level at which people are not really going to ever make it to the New Yorker, but they all think they might. And I don't think it happens in a field that has commercial viability the way science fiction or fantasy or horror does. Uh, But I think it does happen to some extent. Yeah, seems to me that we've been talking for a, a, you know, about the hour that we, we we normally would. So maybe we should begin to wind up. And I thought maybe a closing question would sort of take us out. And I'm curious what each of you thinks about the commercial and artistic future for short fiction. Whether you feel optimistic and why, or whether you feel pessimistic and why. Perhaps starting with well, Sheila. I'm, I'm always optimistic. I think regardless of what happens to any individual magazine, there's you know, there's always going to be magazines. There are always going to be places to be published. And there's always going to be um, brand new, totally different people writing things that I never even dreamed about, you know, popping out of nowhere. I have, you know, new people coming out in the next few issues. I've just been buying stories from people that, you know, that these are going to be like their first or second sales. And, um, and I'm, I'm, it's an interesting thing. I've always felt like the magazine to some extent is a, um, Oh, it's almost like, uh, trying to the, I have this belief that I will always find enough great fiction to put a magazine together. And, and luckily the belief is based on the facts that I always do end up with this Mm -hmm. material, you know, but uh, there's always the possibility the ball could come crashing down. You know, the material doesn't go up. But I just don't believe that's going to happen because there's always been and there has been for so long great material. And I don't see writers going away and I see a lot more. I, I see lots of promising young people and young and not necessarily young, but new writers coming along all the time. Um, so, yeah, I'm very I'm optimistic that there that short fiction will continue to be be great and will evolve and will be totally different from anything we're reading right now, but we'll still mm-hmm. be an interesting narrative. So we'll still be able to relate to it. Neil? That's it. Um, Neil? I, I'm 
I quite often ha- point out things that are that are messed up, but I think that a lot of them are going to a lot of them are going to settle out on their own just just due to the way the the market operates. It self corrects. Um, I'm I'm really optimistic about like the trajectory that the field has been taking. I mean, uh, we haven't touched on podcasting, for example, and there's a huge area right there of of, of short fiction. And we're doing a podcast. I kind of find it funny that we didn't mention it, but it, there's a huge community of, of people who who listen to to fiction only that they don't have time to read. And this is this avenue is open doors to to reaching those audiences. Um, the whole international thing that I've said a few times now, and uh, uh, you know, j- just uh, the the depth uh, and br- breadth of the submissions we're getting from all over the world, where it's a lot easier these days for for people to not only hear about us but to to send us material. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of of very interesting things in the works and and already happening, and it's it's only going to uh, continue to improve things. Uh, I'm optimistic. Um, again, a lot of what everybody's already said. I mean, there, there's always great stories and, and there's stuff uh, we have coming up that, uh, again, I just can't wait for people to see. So I'm uh, definitely optimistic. <laughs> Charlie? Yeah, I, um, I'm optimistic too. I think we uh, uh, need stories and, and appreciate stories now more than ever before. And I, I think the secondary markets for stories, the podcast that Neil talked about, uh, the fact that stories can be adapted for film and, and television, like, you know, uh, Ted Chang's Story of Your Life and the great movie Arrival uh, that mm-hmm. it became recently and, and all the other places there are for content. Um, and I think that uh, science fiction ideas and particularly science fiction novellas uh, translate really well to to uh, some of these other secondary markets um, and whenever something gets adapted uh, that leads to people picking up you know Ted's book and reading it or uh, whoever's book and reading it and finding short fiction um, so I, I think that things are really are really good right now and that's uh, uh, I guess that's where I'll stop well, Jonathan, you asked the damn question, so you have to answer it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, creatively, I am enormously confident in the future of the field. Uh, I think that you, there is such a depth and breadth of material being published. There are so many new writers coming on, and there's the uh, uh, such an interaction between it, between that work, that I, I, mean, I couldn't not be optimistic. And commercially, I think that it's going to work itself out. I think there's still a lot of there are challenges around stabilizing markets. I mean, Neil said quite correctly in many ways that there are possibly too many markets right now, and so that will naturally perhaps sort itself out over time. But uh, on a collective level, I'm, I'm hugely optimistic. I mean, uh, any time when you have a large number of readers who are interested in something and – you know, Neil's talked you know, elsewhere in the past about this, you know, this, the rough scale of his readership, and we've got an idea of the rough scale of everything else, either through published statistics. There are a lot of people reading short science fiction and fantasy and horror. So I think you, know, you couldn't not be optimistic at the end of the day. I guess my uh, – just to add a footnote to that, I, I, I tend to think having read uh, just – as I mentioned earlier, just uh, finishing today, Jonathan Shear's Best, I think I'm – I'm, I'm possibly not ap- optimistic about the constant 
pressure to come up with new ideas in the way that science fiction back in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s did. I'm very optimistic about the fact that different perspectives make even similar sounding science fiction look different. And that broadening of perspectives, we're getting stories from Korean and Thai and Nigerian and, uh, and, and, and various perspectives, which may look at familiar material in a completely new way. So science fiction, I'm, I'm kind of supporting what Neil was saying. Every time you bring a different cultural tradition into science fiction, you redefine the whole field in a way, don't you? Yeah, I think you do. I don't know who you're asking. But what I am going to say is we should probably wind up here, Gary. Uh, we've had a, a, a very interesting conversation. There's a lot of other things we could talk about. We could talk about, as you said, Neil podcasting. We could talk about self-funding of, of writers' right. own short fiction publications through Patreons and those sorts of things. There's a lot of things. But at this point, we have to bring it to a close. So I'd like to thank each of you individually. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Irene. And thank you, Charlie, for making the time thank to join guys. us today. Thank you. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. This was fun. Thanks. Yeah. And Gary. Yeah. And Gary, I will talk to you. And until next week, this has been from whatever that room is that Jonathan always talks about at the beginning, the Good Street Podcast. It's that. What do you even mean? You asked me to do that. You don't. No, you made up. It doesn't even exist.